announce it. <clears throat> Sorry, try to clear this out. When, when you think of a Christian life, do you picture it as a, like an entrance ticket to get into a park and then once you're in, you can do anything you want? Or perhaps as a get-out-of-hell-free card, uh, something you put in your back pocket, sort of a spiritual fire insurance, just in case you need to play that card at the end of life when you stand before God? Or do you picture it as a long journey that begins when we first trust Christ and then finally ends at death when we see him face to face? Most of us probably recognize that the Bible describes the Christian life much more in the third way as a long journey. It's a choice between two different paths with two totally distinct destinations. And the Christian life, it's a long journey. It's a difficult journey. It's even a dangerous journey. And anytime I think about this, I'm always reminded of one of my favorite books to read to my kids, Dangerous Journey. I think I probably mentioned this before, but it's, it's a uh, sort of a remake of John Bunyan's classic, Pilgrim's Progress. And in this book, the main character, Christian, uh, moves from the city of destruction, which he hears from a book he received that it's going to be destroyed, but there's a celestial city that he wants to go to it. So it's about his journey from his city away. But the problem is he's got this huge burden, this burden on his back, his burden of guilt and sin, which just weighs him down. But finally he's able to get rid of his burden at the foot of the cross and goes on. But in the process he falls into the slew of despond, and then, and then he uh, meets pliable and obstinate who try to dissuade him from going on. He, he runs into the castle, gets caught in the castle of doom where, where the giant despair traps him. So all these stories as he's trying to work his way through, he gets off the path, gets into trouble, gets back on the path. But it's about his journey, this long and dangerous journey, all the way until he passes through the dark river and then finally reaches the celestial city. And the point of, of Bunyan's original book, and, and this one as well, is that if you don't persevere on the path, you won't make it to the end, to the celestial city. If we get off the path and throw in the towel, we won't make it to the celestial city. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul tells the believers in Philippi, and in chapter 1, he tells them that his desire is to honor Christ, whether in life or by death. He says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ. That's far better. But probably the Lord wants me to stay, so I'll stay and minister to you. And then when he gets into chapter 3, he tells them he has counted everything as loss. Everything as loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ as Lord. He suffered the loss of all things. Count them as rubbish that he may gain Christ. He wants to be found in Christ. He's willing to go through suffering if by any means he may attain the resurrection from the dead. And then he tells the Philippians, he said, I haven't obtained it yet. I'm not there yet, but I press on. I forget what lies behind. Straining forward, I press on for the goal of that upward call of God. In Christ Jesus. Paul is describing our walk with Christ 
not as a line which we crossed back when we prayed a prayer at age 9 or 12 or went to Bible camp or something like that. It's not just a line that we crossed, but it's a long walk, right? It's a journey. It's a long and difficult journey, straining forward, pressing on, laying aside encumbrances so that we may reach the finish line and be with Christ. And Paul is concerned that every member of the Philippian church make it all the way. He doesn't want any of them to bail out and throw in the towel. And the Holy Spirit doesn't want any of us to do that either. He wants us all to make it. So let's read in verse 17 in chapter 3. I want to pick up there as Paul is exhorting them, encouraging them. Philippians chapter 3 verse 17 and we'll read through chapter 4 verse 1. Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many walk of whom I've often told you and now tell you, even with tears, they walk, but they are enemies of the cross of Christ. That's a sobering word, isn't it? He says, many walk. They are professing Christians. They're saying, we're walking with Christ. We're walking the Christian life. But he says, in reality, they are enemies of the cross of Christ. Verse 19, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers... Whom I love and long for my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. <clears throat> Our main idea this morning, and I'm sorry this isn't on the screen, is if all we want is bigger houses, fancier cars, and better video games, we can probably get that here, at least for a little while. But if we want all that God promises us in Christ, then we've got to persevere to the end, brothers and sisters. If all we want is bigger houses, fancier cars, better vacations, we can probably get that here. But there's an eternity on the other side, isn't there? And if what we want is all that God promises for us in Christ, then we must persevere all the way to the end. Let's pray. Father, I want, I want to get to the end. I want to see Jesus face to face. And I know that's the desire of many of us, Lord. I hope it's the desire of all of us that we may get to the finish line and see Christ and experience all that you've promised us as your people. Or so would you encourage us today? Would you strengthen us as we walk this difficult and dangerous journey? Lord, work in our hearts, we pray, by your Holy Spirit, through your word, to that end. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's the question we want to consider this morning from this passage. What will keep us on track? 
what will keep us on track all the way to our heavenly home. And I have three points. First, in response to that question, first, knowing our true citizenship and our true Savior. That will be in verse 20. Secondly, fixing our hope on our one true and ultimate happiness. That'll be verse 21. And then staying in the fight, in the race, every day. Chapter 4, verse 1. So the first point, knowing our true citizenship and our true Savior. Look at verse 20 again with me. Paul says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The city of Philippi was in Greece in the province of Macedonia and is one of the few cities outside of Italy that had been made a Roman colony. And what that meant is that the Philippians people were Roman citizens and that gave them numerous advantages including self-government, freedom from taxes, and a whole bunch of other treatment as if they actually lived in Italy, even though they didn't. They lived in what we know as Greece today. And they were very proud of their Roman citizenship. Now for us, most of us here are American citizens, and that brings, it, brings with it a host of privilege, privileges, doesn't it? We enjoy things that the vast majority of people around the world do not enjoy simply because we are citizens of the United States. So what Paul is saying to the Philippians and to us is, it's true that you're Roman citizens, Philippians, And it's true that you're American citizens, Woodstockians, Sovereign Grace Churchers. But that's not your true citizenship. USA is not our true citizenship. Our true citizenship as believers is in heaven. It's not Rome. It's not the USA. So question, if we're living here, but our true citizenship is elsewhere, what does that make us? We're aliens, right? We're foreigners. We're outsiders. We're strangers. Some of you have lived overseas. Many of you have traveled overseas. So you've experienced something of the sense of being an outsider, a foreigner, a non-citizen. I remember landing at Guatemala City Airport uh, for a missions trip and looking out the window and armed guards all on the tarmac. Rise. Later that week, we traveled to Atitlan, an area, a beautiful volcanic area for some sightseeing. And there were checkpoints along the way with, with armed guards in full military gear and automatic weapons. It's like, I am no longer in the United States. And to come back home to our country, it's like, whew, breath, breath of relief and feeling secure again coming back home. I grew up in Japan, and and I enjoyed my growing up years there, but I was always aware that I was a gaijin, an outsider. The language was difficult. You guys understand some of that, right, in a foreign country. Language is difficult. Cultural expectations were different. The Japanese kids would say, Ah, gaijin da, guru guru pa. You understand Japanese, right? Ah, kudeji boya. Did you get that one? Kureji boya. Some of you are getting that. Now, sometimes that bothered me, but at other times it was no big deal because my identity was elsewhere. 
One, it really didn't matter what these Japanese kids think about me. I belong elsewhere. I have a different identity. My citizen was elsewhere. So what does it mean for us to view ourselves as foreigners, aliens, with our citizenship elsewhere? Well, the writer to the Hebrews, when he talks about this, says in chapter 11, in the great chapter of faith, talking about Abraham and some of the other patriarchs, it said, they died in faith. They, did not, they had not yet received all that God had promised them, but having seen these promises and greeting them from afar, and they acknowledged that they were strangers here on the earth. And they were seeking a homeland, and they desired a better country, that is, a heavenly one. They realized our hope, our happiness, is not tied up here. Now, does this mean that we disregard our privileges and responsibilities as citizens of the United States? Not at all. Romans 13 talks about us submitting to our government officials, showing honor to whom honor is due, respect to whom respect. We have the privilege and responsibility of voting, of selecting our leaders at the local, state, and federal level, of voting for our presidents who then nominate Supreme Court justices. So to think about the work Ricardo and his team at Georgia Right to Life have been doing, and many of you have been involved in the pro-life movement over the years, What a great privilege and opportunity it is to be involved in ways that affect the outcome, the the reality of life in our own country. Now, we know that we can't turn the USA into a righteous utopia, but as citizens of the heavenly kingdom, we've been deployed here to this kingdom, right? To bring the truth and righteousness and justice and Love of the heavenly kingdom of our king here into this world. But ultimately, our greatest loyalty is not here. It's there. Our deepest affections are not attached here. We have a different homeland. Our allegiance is to another kingdom. Our hearts are there, not here. And our ultimate hope is to be back home there, not to sink our roots deep here. Henry Morrison and his wife were missionaries in Africa in the late 1900s and early... 20, late 1900s and early 2000... Say that again. Late 1800s, early 1900s, for about 40 years. Tough times when you read about the missionaries in Africa... Most of them did not come home. They died there. Uh, Terrible conditions. But Henry Morris and his wife were returning home on the ship that also happened to be carrying the former president, Teddy Roosevelt. He had been there on a big hunting trip, a big game hunting trip. And when they pulled into the New York Harbor, there were thousands of people there, a band and big welcome sign, all to greet the former president. Welcome home! President Roosevelt. As Henry Morrison and his wife left the ship, there was nobody there, nobody meeting them. And he was a bit dejected when they got to their hotel and he said, we have served the Lord 
for 40 years, and we get here and not one person greets us and welcomes us home. Well, he had a good wife, and his wife said to him, Henry, you've forgotten something. Do you know what she's going to say? You're not home yet. We're not home yet. Isn't that a great thing to remember? Brothers and sisters, we know that this place, this life, can never truly be home for us as believers. It can't. And the older we get, the more dissatisfied we get with this life. Isn't that true? The more brokenness we experience, layers on layers of difficulty, this life cannot and never will satisfy us and give us lasting happiness. It won't. God doesn't intend it to. He will see for all of us that it doesn't. But we want a Savior to fix it, don't we? We want someone to fix these messes that we're in. Back in the days of the Roman Empire, one of the names or titles for Caesar Augustus was Soter, which is the Greek word for Savior. Same word we find here at the end of verse 20. We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And they called him Soter, Savior, because he had saved the empire from instability and foreign powers and had brought peace. And we can find ourselves wanting a political leader, right, to be our Savior. We say, if we can just elect so-and-so, he's going to fix everything. Well, just a little bit of review, right? Bill Clinton couldn't fix things. George W. couldn't fix things. Nor could President Obama or President Trump or Joe Biden. So even while we work and vote and do what we can to make whatever forward progress we can in this broken world, we realize that not only is our citizenship elsewhere, but our hope for a Savior, He is also from somewhere else, right? There there is no Savior here in this world to fix things for us. Our hope for deliverance from all our messes and brokenness is neither in the Republican nor the Democratic Party or any other party or any other human leader. But at the end of verse 20, it says, from it, from heaven, we eagerly await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Our Savior will be the King of heaven when he returns. And think just, you're, you're familiar with the book of Philipp, the letter to the Philippians. And who has Paul told us in, the, in this book that Jesus is? He is the one who is in the very form of God. And yet he humbled himself, emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being made in the likeness of flesh, humbling himself even to the point of death. But he didn't stay dead. God raised him from the dead and exalted him to the highest place over every name, everywhere. God gave him glory and dominion over all peoples and all nations everywhere, including the Roman Empire back in their time and including Russia and the USA and China today. And he is the Savior. He is the fixer. He is the Redeemer who will come back and make all things right. And what will he do when he returns? Verse 21. He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject 
all things, all things to himself. And this is our second point. How do we stay on track? By fixing our hope on the one true and ultimate happiness. By fixing our hope on that one true and ultimate happiness. Verse 21 tells us that Jesus will transform our lowly body. The way the, way the Greek there is actually our body of humiliation. All right? These bodies that are marked by frailty and sickness and a propensity to sin and temptation, they are bodies of humiliation, right? And we look in the mirror and realize there's a lot to be humble about. But he will transform these bodies of humiliation to be like his body of glory. Think about what was Jesus' body like when he rose from the dead, his resurrected body? He still had the scars, right? He still had the marks, the piercing in his side, the marks on his hands and feet. But there was no evidence of being beaten and tortured and just having been crucified three days earlier. Jesus says, hey, 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 guys, go easy on the hugs, all right? I'm still a little bit sore. You felt like that right after falling out of that tree, Josiah. Jesus did more than fall out of a tree, okay? He was hung on a tree. But he's resurrected, and he is in a body of, of no, no more weakness, no sickness. It will last forever. He still has that body. He will have it through all eternity. And it's a very physical, can, can we say more physical than our bodies are here? And that's the kind of body he will give to each one of us when he transforms our bodies of humiliation to be like his body of glory. Glenn and Charles, I have hope for you guys. When he gives your new bodies, you will never ache after a Saturday of work out in the backyard. Dwight, your Lord Jesus is going to give you new knees and new feet. Those of you who struggle with with vision, you're never going to have to look for your glasses again or try to put your contacts in. You will see perfectly. And our friends and loved ones who live with the pain and heartache of disabilities and special needs, when your Savior shows up from heaven, he will transform your brokenness, your body of humility, and make it like his body of glory. A number of years ago, we were at our celebration conference up in Lynchburg, um, Liberty University there. I think it was 2004. And we were there singing Charles Wesley's great hymn, Oh, for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. And I was standing before, behind Aaron Coombs. Some of you remember Aaron. And Aaron had, uh, at that point, a small boy who was Down syndrome named Chandler. And the third verse of that hymn goes, Hear him, ye deaf. His praise, ye dumb, your loosened tongues employ. Ye blind, behold your Savior come, and leap ye lame for joy. And I was looking at Aaron, and I put my arm on his shoulder, and I said, Aaron, someday Chandler is going to be made completely whole. Completely whole. Who else needs a reminder of what's going to be fixed when Jesus returns? Anybody else? These bodies of humility, they ache, don't they? They groan. 
one day they will humble us and frustrate us no longer. But even more than that, brothers and sisters, they will never again be used for sinful purposes. And to to me, this is even more wonderful, isn't it? The grief we bring on ourselves by our own sin, indwelling sin in our relationships, it will be a thing of the past. No more pride, no more lust, no more resentful bitterness for us. We will be like Jesus. We will be transformed to have a glorious, sinless, immortal body. What a hope that is. But it's not just our bodies that will be transformed. These bodies are like a microcosm of the cosmic breakdown in our universe, right? Verse 21 goes on. Verse 21 says, He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Then it goes on. By the power that enables him even to subject what? All things to himself. All things. This is a cause. This phrase reaches the entire cosmos. When Jesus Christ subjects all things to himself, it's referring to him fixing and restoring and recreating everything perfectly. The groaning in our bodies is a daily reminder of the groaning in our entire universe. And in Romans chapter 8, Paul puts it this way. He says, the sufferings of this present time, they're not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. The creation, he says, is looking forward to when we, as the sons of God, are redeemed and hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage of corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. In the storms and waves of life, it's easy to get everything all turned upside down, isn't it? And we we lose sight, we lose our focus, we lose sight of true north, as I heard someone put it recently. Keeping our hope fixed on the one true and ultimate happiness requires constant refocusing, doesn't it? But have you probably heard, and maybe coaches say this one, Donnie, Keep your eyes on the prize. Keep your eyes on the prize. And we need to do that, brothers and sisters. We need to keep our eyes on that prize that Jesus promises when he returns. When he returns, finally, finally, there will be something that brings lasting happiness. But not until then, brothers and sisters, and not by anyone else, And not anywhere else. It won't be here. It won't be anybody other than Jesus. Because our citizenship is in heaven. And Jesus, he is our savior. Only he can make everything right. And our lasting happiness will come when he he comes and restores all things and transforms all things. Now we get tastes and glimpses, right? We have the previews. 
We, we see glimpses of the goodness he has given us. But these are only glimpses. They're only the previews. The USA is not the promised kingdom. It's actually a rival kingdom. If we set our hope for lasting happiness here, then we will become like the ones Paul warns his readers about in verses 18 and 19. Look back there. Look at verses 18 and 19 again. Paul has just said in verse 17, imitate me as I'm on this journey. Walk like I do. Then he says in verse 18, for many... Many walk who are enemies of the cross of Christ. And thankfully, we, we, don't not, we don't need to be the judge of everybody else's heart, but we need to be aware there are many who profess, especially in the South, right? Profess to be followers of Jesus. They're actually enemies of the cross of Christ. Paul describes them in verse 19. He says, their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. They glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. In other words, their end is hell, eternal perdition. Their God is their belly, probably not referring to just all their desires for food, but all the bodily, fleshly appetites, that's what they serve. Whatever they desire, that's what they serve. They glory in their shame. What we glory in probably refers to what do we tend to talk about all the time what do we boast in what do we want to tell everybody else about that's what we glory in what most delights us what do we dream about and then their minds are set on earthly things in other words their real hope isn't in the kingdom of heaven to come but they want to get everything they can from this life that's where their hope is and paul warns us don't don't follow them and certainly don't be like them So how do we stay on track? By knowing our true citizenship and our true Savior. By fixing our hope on the one true and ultimate happiness. And then thirdly, by staying in the fight, in the race, every day. Look at chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, my beloved, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I want us to notice three things here. The word therefore, then the simple command, and then all the relational language that Paul uses in this verse. So the word therefore connects us back to the previous verses, right? So what, what's the connection? Well, therefore, in light of the fact that our true citizenship is in heaven, not here, and our one hope for true and lasting happiness will never be found in anything in this life, but only at what Christ will bring us when he, at his return. Therefore, stand firm in the Lord. It's a very simple command, isn't it? Stand firm in the Lord. Sometimes Paul says, press on, keep going. Sometimes he says, stand firm. I think both of them are just the idea of persevering, right? Don't quit. Never give up. Remember Churchill's speech? Never give up. Never give up. Hold your ground. Don't give in. Resist. Don't drift. Don't abandon your post. Stand firm in the Lord because all the promises of God are yes in Christ Jesus. So stand firm in Christ. If you want all that God has promised, brothers and sisters, you've got to cling to Jesus. 
If you abandon him, you abandon it all. Stand firm in the Lord. But then the relational language is very interesting in this verse because Paul could have just said, therefore, stand firm in the Lord. That'd be sufficient, right? But in his relationship with the Philippians, he says, therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I think part of the point here is that perseverance is a community project. Paul loved the Philippian church. He had helped to plant it. And when I was reading this the other day, I was just thinking, I, I did not plant this church, so I can't at all say the same, exactly the same things Paul said. But the relationships the Lord has blessed me with here, brothers and sisters, and, and I, I know some of you well, some of you just have met, but to be a part of you all means everything to me. I am quite sure I would not make it without you. I love you all. So thankful for you all. And when we stand firm in the Lord, it needs to be together with others, right? With people we love, who we are walking with, who know us, who encourage us. So thankful that God doesn't just tell us individually, hey, go, make it on your own. No, stand firm in the Lord together. I don't think there are many of us, and perhaps not any, who will make it to the heavenly kingdom if we try to do it on our own. So what will keep us on track all the way to our heavenly home? Knowing our true citizenship is in heaven, fixing our hope on our one true and ultimate happiness will be ours when Jesus returns, and then staying in the fight, in the race, every day together. So just a few questions here by way of application. Number one, are you eagerly awaiting Jesus' return? Do you love the thought of his appearing, as Paul puts it in 2 Timothy 4.8? Are you eagerly awaiting his return? On a couple of occasions, I've been down at Hartsfield Airport to pick up someone that I didn't know. So you put their name on a card, right? Standing there holding it, and there's seven other eight people there at the top of the big escalator holding these cards with names and uh, you have no idea what the person looks like because you never met them. And to some degree, you don't really care because they're just a stranger. And I might even be reading something on my phone holding this card, and they've come up and stood right in front of me. I didn't even notice it because really not paying that much attention. But if I'm waiting there at the airport to pick Carol up, it's a very different matter. She's been away several days, and I'm, I'm checking every face coming up that ex- escalator, right? Where, where is she? Where is she? Looking around, peering around people, trying to find, because I can't wait to see her face. I'm straining to see. I'm eagerly awaiting her return. And I know it's the same for many of you when you've been separated from someone you dearly love, because cards and phone calls are good, but there's nothing like seeing them face to face, right? You just can't beat seeing someone we love face-to-face. Is that the way you and I think about seeing Jesus at his return? It should be. You know all that he promises you at his coming? Brothers and sisters, let's grow to know him 
better and better so well. The more we get to know Jesus, I promise you, the more you will not be able to wait to see him face to face. So that's the first question. Are you eagerly awaiting Jesus' return? Second question, is your soul seeking its satisfaction in the good life here or in Christ's perfect kingdom which is coming? Are you and I looking for it in bigger houses and newer cars and more exotic vacations? Now, we need houses to live in. We need transportation. We need to be rested and refreshed from time to time. But this isn't our home, brothers and sisters. Our true citizenship is elsewhere. So we should ask ourselves, am I putting my hope in these things? Do I think this new car Carol, I've, I've said this too often lately, but I've got my eyes on a RAV4, a hybrid, a 2022. And thankfully, I have a wife who reminds me, Phil, this is not the right time to be dropping $35,000 on a new car, okay? But, you know, it's amazing how many I see driving down the I know it's just the Lord saying, Phil, there it is. This is, this is my will for you. Now, I hope you're realizing that's an idiotic thing to say. But do I think that that RAV4 is going to bring my soul satisfaction? It, it can be easy to get there, right? With just this next thing is going to make my life wonderful. Brothers and sisters, if our affections start getting drawn to these things, what do we call that? It's infidelity to our Savior, right? He is our ultimate our greatest love. He must be our greatest love. So if we're looking for satisfaction here, we put our hope in the things of this earth. We may get a little bit of happiness and joy for a short time. But if we want what God promises us, what Jesus promises, we must cling to him and realize it's not, it's not here, brothers and sisters. Jesus put it this way. Whoever would save his life will lose it. If you want to save your life here and gain it all here, you're going to lose it in the end. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Let's not seek our soul's satisfaction here, but in Christ's return. Thirdly, are you and I going to persevere in the race all the way to meet him face to face? Or will we, will we be distracted from finishing by easier paths? There's always an easier path, right? The Christian life is hard. It's difficult. It's long. It's dangerous. But the alternative The reality is hell, right? And brother says, we need to take that very seriously. If we throw in the towel on Christ, we're choosing an eternity apart from him. A marathon is hard. It's grueling. Many times you feel like quitting. Aaron talked about, described that last week, right? About running that marathon. But I'm pretty sure that very few who finish the race regret that they persevered all, to, all the way to the finish line. But I'm sure a lot who quit and threw in the towel 
at mile 16 or 18 or 22 wish they had gone all the way. Brothers and sisters, Christ is worth it, is he not? Jesus is worth anything we have to endure and persevere through here. And and when he comes back and returns, it'll take just a moment to erase all these struggles, all these struggles. And it doesn't take, we don't need to be great people to gain that prize. We're not great people at all. All we need is to persevere in faith in our great Savior. And when we reach the end of our journey and see Jesus face to face, it will be as C.S. Lewis describes in The Last Battle. It will be only the beginning of the real story. All their life, referring to the kids in Narnia, all their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, They were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and in which every chapter, every chapter is better than the one before. Heavenly Father, thank you for the hope that you give us, for the promises you give us in Jesus Christ, that our citizenship, Lord, we have a heavenly kingdom to look forward to, the new heavens and the new earth, which will come to this earth. We have a Savior who will transform and fix all things and make all things new. So would you work in our hearts, Lord, help each one of us to persevere in faith day by day, stay on track and reach our heavenly kingdom. Chris, would you come on forward? And we're going to sing one song to close. Let's worship him and rejoice in him. Please stand.